Our scripture reading is taken from the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave these names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. This is God's word. When somebody's world falls apart, uh, when their life gets turned, so to speak, upside down, uh, when their society is in turmoil, when their community or their family lose everything, or they themselves lose whatever they know, whatever they find comfort in, what they hope in, what their identity is in, right? How, what they identify with. When they lose all of that, they tend to question what they've always known. They begin to question what they have assumed to have always been true. And they begin to, uh, to wonder if they can trust the institutions like government, uh, commerce, religion, that they've always assumed to be trustworthy. They begin to wonder, uh, can I trust my leaders, authority figures in my life, past and present, those who have raised me or trained me or guided me or discipled me? Uh, people begin to even ask questions like, can I trust my faith? Can I even trust in the God of my faith? Is he trustworthy? Is he good? Is he real? And if yes, well, what in the world is he doing right now? Now, these are common questions, and, and I believe they're good questions to be asking yourself. We should be honest with ourselves. Is, is, is this what we think? Now, while these questions are common and I think natural, how do we respond to these questions? And more to the point, what is a Christian response to questions like this? Because that's what ultimately we're concerned about at Deep Run Church. Well, uh, Daniel, uh, the ancient uh, Judean prophet, Daniel, and his three young friends uh, were Hebrew teenagers. As far as we can tell from scholarship, uh, these boys were very young, teenagers at the, at the most. Daniel and his friends were Hebrew teens uh, whose world had literally turned upside down. And uh, their country, their way of life, their status, their own plans, their possessions, their relationships, family, friends, community, all of it vanished. When the Babylonians, really the uh, history's first superpower, 
uh, conquered Israel and the kingdom of Judah in the south in 605 BC. It was one of three major routes of the Babylonians against that land over an 18-year period. And this was the first of those military routes. And deported them, Daniel and his friends deported them 700 miles east of Jerusalem to Babylon. Now Daniel's famous book in the Old Testament it records historical accounts of Daniel's life and the life of his three friends. It also records for us apocalyptic visions, amazing apocalyptic visions, and we're going to look at all of that in the next couple of months. But the book of Daniel historically has had a tremendous impact upon the faith and the understanding and the outlook of millions upon millions of people for thousands of years. Now, granted, if you're familiar with the Bible, if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, it provides great Bible lessons for children. Uh, we know that. But it provides so much more. The book of Daniel is the foundation for biblical eschatology, you know, talking about the last days, uh, the end of all things. Daniel provides the, the, the vocabulary uh, and, and the foundation for how the Bible talks about God's perspective on human history, human destiny, where it's all going. And most importantly for our conversation over the next few months, living in the time we live here as Americans, most importantly, maybe, Daniel shows us how people of faith can flourish while living in challenging settings. Now, if you're interested in further studying the book of Daniel on your own, I just want you to know uh, some of the primary resources that I am going to be using as I work through this series are, um, frankly, anything you can find by the Bible scholar Tremper Longman on the book of Daniel. I'll also be looking closely at Joyce Baldwin's commentary on Daniel. And then finally, uh, my friend and former mentor Glenn Parkinson's book on Daniel, A Larger Faith. Why Daniel? Why are we looking at Daniel now? Why have I chosen, with the guidance of our elders as well, why have I chosen the book of Daniel? Well, I'm going to be frank with you. I don't think that Christians, American Christians, really know how to live in a society that is no longer sympathetic to our faith. Uh, the Western church has really lost its influence on culture and society. And the Western church has lost its comfort living in the Western world that it has enjoyed for many, many, many centuries. Kind of like a kid who loses control of the television remote and now has to watch whatever everybody else in the room is watching. <laughs> um, in a sense, if you are a Bible-following Christian, a Bible-following Christ disciple living in 21st century America, uh, you and I, we, doesn't matter what your ethnicity or background or political perspective, color of your skin, where you grew up, where you live now, uh, collectively, all of us, uh, we have lost the remote control to our society. And we have to be honest about that. Now, I've said this before, rather than take our example of how to live by looking back to the Old Testament, to how people in a theocracy lived, you know, the Davids, the Solomons, the Ruths, the Abigails, rather than looking at their example, we need to be looking at Daniel's example of how to live. We have to be looking at examples in the Bible of people who lived as exiles, as strangers and aliens, wherever they found themselves. Even the Apostle Peter believed that 
because he calls Christians in 1 Peter chapter 1 exiles, you know, resident aliens, wherever they were living. I think we need to look at Daniel's legacy and find cues from that more than anywhere else in Scripture. Daniel and his friends and their legacy, I think we're going to see, will show us this. And this is the, the main idea for today. When God's people lose everything, they haven't lost him. When Christ followers lose everything, they haven't lost him. And as we unpack that idea, we're going to look at three things today. We're going to try and understand Daniel's situation from the start in Daniel chapter 1. And then we're going to try and understand our situation today in light of his situation. And then finally, we're going to try and understand God's perspective on all of it. And, and those three ideas really, uh, in summary, are what this whole series is going to be about. Understanding Daniel's situation then understanding our situation in light of Daniel's situation, and then finally pulling back and trying to understand what God's perspective is on all of it. That's, that's a gift that the book of Daniel gives us. So let's begin. Now we cannot overstate the life-changing nature of Daniel's situation when we begin this account in Daniel chapter 1. Now at at that time, and, and I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll read again verse 2 of Daniel chapter 1, because maybe verse, verse 2 captures the tumultuous, disorienting magnitude of those events. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, this may seem like strange language, but at that time and in that region of the world, conquering kings would essentially capture the idol of the chief god in the temple of the land they had conquered. Okay, in a sense, um, taking, taking the, the chief god's idol in the temple of the people you just conquered and taking that idol and bringing it back to your own temple, to your own God's temple, it was a symbolism of your God having victory over the God of the people you defeated, right? It was, it was as if the loser's God lost, right? This, this was a symbolic thing. Or if the loser's God hadn't really lost, then it may be the loser's God switched sides. Now, since Israel's God commanded that no idols ever be made of him. That's very clear in the Old Testament. You know, the Babylonians entering into the temple of Jerusalem, they had no idol of Yahweh, of Israel's true God, right? So, so they took the utensils, the, the, the utensils that were used by the priests for offering sacrifices and purifying themselves. You know, it was, that, it was as if the, the King Nebuchadnezzar was saying, my God is better than your God, so I'm going to take your God's spoons and forks and bowls. Now, we're soon going to see, as we read through the book of Daniel, that Judah's God, that Israel's God, had not been defeated at all. But at the moment, Judah's people, maybe even Daniel and his friends, had to wonder, is Marduk, you know, the chief god of the Babylonians, is Marduk greater than Yahweh? Are all these false gods that we've learned about all our lives and told are nothing and we shouldn't worship them, are they actually real? And are they greater than the Lord our God? I had to be wondering this because their lives had fallen apart. 
Their society as they knew it had ended. Notice also that the, the author mentions the land of Shinar, right? Nebuchadnezzar takes all of this stuff and takes some of the people of Judah and brings them to the land of Shinar. Well, to the initial readers of this book, they would have, that would have meant something to them. Because if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 11, the land of Shinar is where the Tower of Babel was built. Right? That big public works project recorded in Genesis chapter 11 was really symbolized as humanity's first joint attempt at saying, forget you, to our Creator. For the people of Israel, uh, the mention of the Tower of Babel, it, it symbolized humanity's revolution against its Creator. So the fact that these people and their precious temple items had been deported to the land of Shinar, well, it seemed to them as though Yahweh had lost. They had lost. And Judah and Israel would never again exist as a sovereign nation. In the line of Davidic kings, the line of David, uh, it was all but a stump, as, uh, as the prophet Isaiah a century before had predicted. You know, it's hard to imagine anything worse than the Holocaust, and it's hard to imagine anything worse than uh, four centuries of slavery in Egypt long before. But this experience, this chapter in the Jewish people's history uh, that Daniel and his friends endured as young men and for the rest of their lives, um, this is one of the worst periods of Jewish history. And we're going to learn of its life-changing impact upon just a handful of male teenagers from Judah. We're told that uh, the, the policy of King Nebuchadnezzar was, was to take a bunch of young men from the conquered place and, and deport them to his own, his own nation and, and uh, treat them well and raise them up to accomplish his own purposes. So, for instance, if you look at verse 5 of Daniel chapter 1, we're told in summary they were to be educated for three years... And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Uh, this means that they were, they were being put into college or university of a sort uh, so that they could enter into political service. This is royal court service in Babylon. Essentially, this was a state-sponsored re-socialization program for Judah's best and brightest, taken against their will to Babylon. This was Babylon's approach of not only empire building, but solidifying the empire that at that time they were rapidly, rapidly building. In Glenn Parkinson's book, um, he tries to compare what Babylon was doing to other famous uh, nations and empires throughout world history. So, for instance, uh, the Romans would intimidate the peoples that they conquered by military occupation and uh, the humiliating, terrifying practice of crucifixion. Or think about how after World War I, uh, Europe humiliated and impoverished Germany. But now think about how after World War II, the Allied powers rehabilitated Germany and Japan, uh, but under a new ideology, right? Right? We're going we're gonna to become your friends, we're going to rehabilitate you, we're going to build up your society so that it can be productive now, but it's gonna be, we're going to call the shots. 
You're going to rebuild your society according to our wishes and our worldview and our principles. And in a way, that's what Babylon was doing. Babylon allowed its vassal nations, uh, the nations they had conquered, its vassal nations to exist, uh, to basically stay alive, but Babylon would deport its most promising youth, right? So, hey, Judah, Israel, you can, you can exist, but we're taking your most promising youth, and we're going to train them, we're going to educate them, we're going to indoctrinate them into Babylonian culture and worldview. And then Babylon would employ them as future government officials sympathetic to Babylon. Okay, so this was a deterrent to, to future insurrections in vassal nations and distant provinces. There is some biblical evidence and historical evidence that Daniel and his friends and young men like them may even have been castrated as eunuchs when they were brought into King Nebuchadnezzar's program. And if that's true, then yet another example of how their lives were decimated. No possibility, possibility of future marriage or love or children of their own, no legacy of their own, right? Though they are alive, though they are well-fed, though they are about to become highly educated, they had lost everything. They had even lost their names. Names which glorified the God of Israel were exchanged by the Babylonians for names that glorified false gods. So if you look at verse 7, we're told that the chief eunuch, Ashpenaz, he gave them new names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Now Daniel was Hebrew for God is my judge. And that was exchanged for Belteshazzar, basically meaning the divine lady protects the king. Now, uh, Shadrach and Meshach, scholars aren't sure exactly what those words mean. However, Azariah meant Yahweh is my helper, and his name was exchanged for Abednego, or Abed-Nego, uh, servant of Nego, uh, the god Nabu. Now, if you're a young person, okay, if you're a teenager, if you're in middle school, if you're in college, uh, <laughs> listen up. This, this is when you begin paying attention in church, okay? I want you to imagine all of your future plans, your dreams, your aspirations, your career goals, where you want to study, you know, that, that all of your friendships, your relatives, that person that you may want to marry someday, your great expectations for your life. Imagine them not just delayed like they are being delayed in this pandemic. Imagine them dead, dead to you, gone. Your life, life as you know it, it's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. Life as you know it is over. You're never going to taste those foods again. You're never going to see those people again. You're never going to see that vista again. It is gone. That was Daniel's situation. That's what his friends and he experienced. If you're African American or American Indian or if you're Jewish, well, your ancestors would know Daniel's situation exactly. Now, since the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in the New Testament uh, would say to Christians, you know, everything that was recorded from the Israelites' ancient history, it was all written down for our instruction. Okay, so, so since uh, if, if you're interested in understanding biblical Christianity and following Jesus, well, all of these things were written down from antiquity for our benefit we, so that we could learn from them. Okay, so if that's the case, well, what can we learn from Daniel's situation? 
What can we learn? How might we understand our own situation today in light of Daniel's? Well, surely the Jews of Judah were asking the question, where is our God? Right? Maybe Daniel and his friends, uh, whether they knew each other at that point or not, they would eventually become acquainted. But as they took that long 700-mile trek from Jerusalem to foreign Babylon, they must have been wondering, what is our God doing? Where is he? Is he real? Is everything we've been taught to believe real? Is it true? Can we trust in it? You know, they had for decades been listening to competing narratives in their own country. And one of those was a narrative of false hope. And uh, one example of that narrative is re was recorded by the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 12. Now these weren't Jeremiah's words. He's, he's repeating what other prophets, false prophets of his day, what, um, what politicians, even the kings, and uh, even, even religious priests were saying. God will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us. Now, I'm not suggesting that we're living through anything remotely like what Daniel lived through. I'm not saying that. You know, but some of the faithful people around the world have and still are experiencing what Daniel experienced. And as Christians, we must remember them, and we must pray for them, and we must resist the myopic view that the only tragedies taking place in humanity are taking place in America right now. But as our society has been rattled by unprecedented events, at least in our lifetime, we might ask ourselves the question, you might ask yourself, have I missed something? In the assumptions that you've always held, in the narratives, the storylines about life and society and history that you've always listened to, have you missed something? The things and the people, the ideas, the institutions that you've put most of your hope and confidence in, have you missed something in all of this? Because it's a good time to reflect. A few years ago when Becky and I... Um, we're visiting some of our missionaries in Central Europe. Uh, we were visiting a mission uh, that, that helps and ministers to uh, refugees from all over the world who come to Central Europe trying to seek political asylum. And, and th these are people who quite literally, their, their worlds had been turned upside down. They had lost everything, their jobs, their careers. Um, they had lost uh, children. They had lost family members, good friends. Uh, they had lost their own spouses. Uh, they had nearly lost their own lives. Some of them lost their own sanity or lost limbs or lost children. Uh, now, many of them were angry. Some of them were bitter and scared. But what's interesting, we, we discovered that many of them were open to hearing a different perspective because the foundations of the lives and the belief systems and the narratives that they had always trusted in and believed by default and assumed were true and reliable had all crumbled, right? They had led to nothing. So now they were saying, "What? tell me something else. You have another way of looking at life? Um, I'm all ears because my way of life, it, it, it left me with nothing. And that's my invitation to you today and throughout this series on the book of Daniel um, I invite you and I challenge you to begin to question 
and examine your long-held assumptions and beliefs. There were other voices in Judah before the Babylonians destroyed it. For decades, for centuries, there was another narrative, a different storyline that was being promoted by prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah right up to the time of Judah's destruction. Prophets who foretold that Judah would be destroyed as it was destroyed when the Babylonians came. A century before, a hundred years earlier, it was the prophet Isaiah who said to the king at the time in Judah, uh, Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. There was a narrative and storyline and worldview that made sense of everything that had happened. And then we look here at Daniel chapter 1 verse 2 and we see these words, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. The Lord gave him up. The Lord gave them up. The Lord did it. And you know, in the beginning of the book of Daniel, that's the only mention of Yahweh, of, of Judah's God. It's the only mention of him so far, but it's the key theological statement of the book. It's going to open up for us uh, the way, the lens in which we look at the entire book of Daniel. The Lord was active and present and working, even in the midst of terrible circumstances. Now, yes, on the surface, this is what we learn. God had warned them of coming judgment. He had warned them for decades, for centuries, but they didn't change their ways. And so he brought destruction because the Bible tells us that God disciplines those whom he loves and he will not allow them to endure in committing unrighteousness and injustices. But there's a deeper thing that's happening in these words. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. This is what we discover, that behind the world's leaders and movements and great tragedies, God is working with a purpose. That is what Daniel and his friends would eventually understand, and they would live by that principle. And that's what I hope you're going to embrace in the coming weeks as we look at this together. God is working with a purpose. Now, if you're not Christian and you're listening, um, what the Bible refers to as sin, uh, that's kind of an ugly word, uh, but it's an important word. What, what the Bible calls sin is really something that you should consider in, factor into uh, the conversation as you begin to question and examine your long-held assumptions and beliefs. Um, and really, sin at its core is this an unwillingness to trust that God is working with a good purpose. An unwillingness to believe that God is good and trustworthy and knows what is best for us. At the core, that's what sin is. But Daniel, and in his book, and through his amazing experiences, and through his amazing apocalyptic visions, and we're going to look at all of that, Daniel invites us into God's perspective on the human condition, 
and on humanity's destiny. Daniel invites us into the throne into the throne room of God where the curtains are pulled back on human history and we look down on human history, on nations and cultures uh, from God's perspective and we see where it's all going. What it's about and where it's all going. But at first glance, we have to see from Daniel chapter 1 verse 2 this simple thing that God's mere presence and simply the acknowledgement of his name and nothing more. That's evidence that Daniel and his friends were, though homeless and nationless, not alone. Despite the hopelessness of the scene, God was all they had and God was all they needed. Can you look at life right now that way? If you're a Christian, can you be satisfied with Christ's name and his presence in your life, in our lives together? Can we be satisfied with Jesus and his presence, regardless of what is happening around us? We will discover that this is exactly what Daniel and his friend's perspective was. And it got them not only through that tumultuous time, but it guided them through another, as far as we can tell, seven decades of life living as refugees, but somehow having, in Daniel's case, an amazing political position in that land. Seven decades. This was their guiding principle, that they hadn't lost their God. And this guided Daniel and his friends in such a way that their influence, not only as Christians, but as politicians, uh, their influence as court uh, magi had an impact that would be seen centuries later when another group of magi would come east to Jerusalem to ask the king of that day, where is the one that was born King of the Jews, we have come to worship him. Their legacy for living as exiles for God in a land that was not sympathetic to their faith, their legacy continues to this day. That way of life was not only their perspective, we discover centuries later, it was the perspective of the, the Apostle Paul, right? who would say uh, to the church in Philippi, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. There you have it. If you're following Jesus, if you're thinking about becoming a Christian and following Jesus, this is what Christianity is. It's being willing to consider anything and everything in this life, in our existence, as worth very little. Holding everything loosely in comparison to holding Jesus, to being close to him and letting him love you and change your life. When we lose everything, we haven't lost God. So will you, along with me, will you question and examine your long-held assumptions and beliefs, the worldviews, the storylines, the narratives that you have believed, that you have trusted in? Will you reassess all of them in such a way that transcends our current events? 
Can you see beyond all the ugliness and conflict that's taking place in our world and in our society and in our lives? Can you see them all from a perspective that transcends them all? Can you see them from God's perspective? That's what the book of Daniel is going to offer us. And what I've called this series is simply good news for exiles. Because the things that God would share with Daniel through his amazing experiences and through the apocalyptic visions he saw, all that God shared with Daniel, that gave Daniel hope. You know, for the next 60 or 70 years of his life, living as a political refugee in such a remarkable and influential way. That was Daniel's hope. And then that hope became the hope of the Jews. And then that hope became the hope of the early Christians. And that hope has been the hope of persecuted Christians from every century in every part of the world ever since. And my prayer and my challenge is that you and that we will make it our hope as well. So let's pray. Our God, uh, we are not accustomed to letting go of the things that we hold most dear and trust in the most and find our comfort in. We're not used to giving them up, especially when we don't have to. I thank you for Jesus who, who is willing to give everything up and simply cling to you as his heavenly father. And we know that his devotion to you, his love for you, his trust in you is what brought him to the cross to die for our sins and um, how you rose him up from the dead uh, to, to illustrate that that is the life, that is the true goal of all, of all humanity, that is your purpose for humanity, to count everything as a loss compared to knowing you, our Creator, and trusting in you. Uh, so help us, really, uh, to become more like Jesus. And uh, we ask that you would uh, make us more like Jesus as we consider the book of Daniel. And uh, Lord, I pray that it would truly be good news for us as we live in a world that you say is not our own and is not our true home. Help us to become more like Jesus. And um, we thank you for this time and ask that you would guide us through the next few months. Amen. <music>